Welcome back. As you find your way, would you please find Mark chapter 6 as well? We'll be there in just a minute. I have a question. I'm going to take a quick informal survey. How many of you, when you go someplace, you like to pack light and take just the bare essentials, smallest bag possible? That's how you, that's how you roll, okay? A few of you. And how many of you bring everything but the kitchen sink? You want to be prepared for every possibility, okay? All right, some of you are pointing. I'll just ask you to raise your own hand. Everything and the kitchen sink. That's actually how I typed it in my notes, and I thought, that doesn't sound right. But yes, everything and the kitchen sink. Today, we're going to find out how Jesus wanted his 12 to travel this first time he sent them out. We're going to see he sent them out two by two, but he gave them very specific instructions on this occasion. The, the instructions about what to take and what not to take seem to be just for this particular time. And by the time we finish, we're going to see that he also sends them with a message, and the message is to repent. What we're headed into is another one of these sandwiches that Mark puts together, and I'm not going to try to do the whole sandwich today because it's lots of verses. But what we're going to do is we're going to begin at the second half of verse 6 in a moment, and I'm going to read all of it so that you can see kind of how it fits together because the story of the apostles being sent out ties back in around verse 29. But the middle section is about Herod, and we're going to talk about that next week. So the focus, if you will, if I were to do a one-word summary of this week and next week, today is repentance and next week is sin. We're going to talk about the downward spiral of sin next Sunday. But I'm going to read the entire thing this week and next week is my plan, just so that you know how it fits together and what's going on. I, my own opinion which could be wrong, but my own opinion is that sometimes Mark does this to give us the sense that there's time elapsing. Because we don't know how long the disciples were sent out on their trip. It could have been weeks, perhaps even months. Not longer than that, probably. But there's a sense of there's time elapsing because we're going to do some flashback in the story of Herod. That's the idea as I get it. So would you stand, please? I'm going to read this passage for us. Starting off here with Jesus sending out the twelve, commissioning them, and then breaking into the story about Herod and then coming back. So this is halfway through verse 6 of Mark chapter 6. Then he, that's Jesus, went about the villages in a circuit teaching. And he called the twelve to him and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now King Herod had heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, 
for he had married her. For John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison. Brought the head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And we'll stop there with our reading for this morning. Let's pray together, please. Our Lord, we are thankful to be able to have your word available to us in language that we can understand. It is readily available. Many of us can access multiple copies, either in print or on an electronic device. You've made it so easy for us to get and read and even study your word. But Lord, may we not take it for granted May it be real to us. May it be rich and precious to us. Lord, may we approach this passage this morning knowing that these are your words and wanting to hear from you. So give us ears to hear. May we listen with all the attention that we can and may we listen with the intention of obeying whatever you show us. Lord, we need these words. We need you to speak truth into our lives. Truth that we can depend on. Truth that we can count on. Truth that matters. So please give us understanding, and may we rejoice that you have given us understanding. I ask, Lord, that you would empower me to speak your word accurately and boldly this morning. That you would change us to be more like your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Often, not always, often, I write the main points on Sunday morning as I'm studying going back through it. So this morning I started. And I said, there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this. And I came up with five things for you. And you're thinking, Bob, there are only seven verses. I know. If you don't get 
All of them, I understand, because five is a lot. So if you don't get all of them, I want you to get the last one. Is that fair? Can everybody get the fifth one if you don't get any others? Here they are. Number one, Jesus sends out his disciples on mission. You say, Bob, I knew that before I came. Yes, but we're going to talk about how and why. Number two, materialism has no place in that mission. Number three, God provides for his children on mission. Number four, people are responsible for their rejection of the gospel. And here's number five. Put stars around this one. Repentance is essential to the message of the gospel. It matters. You can't have a complete gospel without it. So we'll talk about all those. You'll get to see them on the screen again. But we're going to go back to the middle of verse 6, where we left off last week. If you're with us, or if you're familiar with it, or if you just look up your page a little bit, you'll see that Jesus had been rejected by his townspeople, the people in his hometown where he grew up, Nazareth. And we read that he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. But he didn't just stop. He didn't just quit because these people aren't listening. These people aren't believing. He, he continued teaching. And he went elsewhere. He went places where they did have faith, where they did want to hear. And he did more miracles. We'll read that by the end of the chapter. So the end of verse 6, where I started a moment ago, then he, that's Jesus, went about the villages in a circuit. So he's going around a circuit, perhaps back around the Lake of Galilee, teaching. Whatever it is, he started in one point and went several different places and came back to the first point. So he's traveling around in a circuit and he's seeking to share the message. And that brings us to verse 7, the new verse for today, the first one. Jesus sends out his disciples on mission. He sends out his disciples on mission. That's what we would expect him to do, based on what we've read previously in the Gospel of Mark. Verse 7 says, And he called the twelve to himself, come here guys, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. So the twelve, we know who they are. Mark has listed them for us previously. And we even read what he was going to do with them once he called them. That's back in chapter 3. I'm going to read it to you. It'll, it'll be on the screen as well. You don't have to turn there, but Mark 3.13 says, And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. And then, then he appointed 12 for three things. Do you remember them? He appointed them for three things. The first one was what? To be with him. We talked about that. We've talked about that several times already, haven't we? To be with him, to spend time with him, to learn from him, to go around with him and observe what he's saying and what he's doing. So first off, they needed to be with him, and that's what they've done for approximately a year at this point. And then it says, and that he might send them out to preach. Bingo, that's where we are now in the story. There's a second thing that he called them to do, to be with him, and then he would send them out. That root there in the Greek is our word apostle. To send them out to do what? To preach. And in addition to preach, there's a third thing there. We talked about it, verse 15, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. To work miracles, if you will, if you want to lump all that together. So that's what he had planned for them to do, and we saw that. We read about it back in chapter 3. Now it's happening. Now it's playing out. They have spent approximately a year seeing Jesus preach the word and watch the way he interacts with people. And now he's going to send them, and they'll be able to do the same thing he did, preach the gospel, proclaim repentance, 
to cast out demons and to heal. And what is that going to do? That's going to multiply the spread of the kingdom. So understand, I, I know you probably read that first one, maybe you even wrote it down and you thought, okay, that's not very profound. Jesus sends out his disciples on mission. And that, that's something that we need to remember because some of us would be much more comfortable if he would just call us to be with him. And we're okay in our, in our proverbial monastery or our house. And yes, I enjoy reading the Bible, and you should. I'm glad you do. And I enjoy praying and having a relationship with God. But he sends us out. We can't just stay there. If we are a follower of Jesus, we are sent out on a mission. We'll get to the end of the Gospels and we read what we commonly call the Great Commission. We are sent out. While we are going, we are supposed to make disciples, right? So understand that if you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, he is sending you out. That's why I said Jesus sends out his disciples on mission. Another way to say that is that those Jesus calls to be with him, he also sends out to tell about him. It's a both and. It's not either or. If he calls you to himself, and that describes most of you in the room, he's also sending you out to tell other people about him, to tell about the change that he has brought about in your life. So it says there, send them out. That's, that's the word that can also be translated as apostle. And it says there in, in the verb that he's doing it individually. So he's saying, okay, the two of you, you're going to go. He may have even told them where to go. And the two of you go here, and the two of you go there. And if you are interested in this, you can look at the way Matthew words it in his gospel, chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, when he gives the list of the disciples. He does it at this point, and he does it in pairs, if you look at it. And that very well may be the, the pairs. So yes, somebody had to go with Judas. Somebody had to go with Peter. Somebody had to go with Thomas. You can see how they're matched up there if you want to. But the point is two by two. And that was something that was common even in Old Testament times, but certainly it was common among John the Baptist. He had disciples, and when he sent two of them to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come, or are we looking for another one? He sent two of them. He seemed to have them go out in pairs, and that's what Jesus did here and on other occasions. That's what they did in the early church. We read about Barnabas and Saul, and then later Paul and Silas, or Paul and Timothy. Often there were at least two. Well, Why? Well, I can give you a couple of reasons. One, looking back to the Old Testament, you don't have to turn there, but Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 and 10 say, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. And we know this. Those of us who are married understand this, right? That it is very good to have someone who is on the same team with you. To have someone who is there for you, who, who loves you, knows you really well, accepts you anyway. And there is so much that the Lord has blessed me with, just personally. I'm going to talk about her since she's not here this morning. Rochelle is a huge blessing and has been my right hand in ministry for, for 20 plus years. And it is a blessing to know that, let's say we're in a counseling situation, that I'm stuck, I'm thinking, and she has something to say, or vice versa. And if you go witnessing with somebody, for someone to pray while somebody's talking, and then to switch back and forth, it, it, there's strength in numbers, but to have two, then you're not going out trying to strong-arm somebody. You're just, there are two of you there, and it's helpful. You can lift each other up 
whether it's a parent-child relationship or a husband-wife relationship or a good friendship, to be able to encourage one another. We're going to see more of that in our Tuesday night study in the weeks to come. How about this, though? That's a positive way to look at it. Two are better than one. They have a good reward for their labor. Amen. I like that. The flip side of that would be that you had to have at least two to bear witness when someone was guilty. Think of the Old Testament. I'm going to read you Deuteronomy 17.6. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So how many witnesses do you need if someone was worthy of death? At least two. That is a civil law for a physical death. But how many of us are supposed to face spiritual death? How many of us are guilty and condemned, stood condemned? And so to have two people witness, that's a good thing because I stand spiritually condemned to death. Thankfully, God rescued me. Thankfully, he sent somebody to tell me. In my case, it was my older sister and others who shared the gospel with me. It says also that he gave them power. And your translation may say authority or right over unclean spirits. So he is delegating his authority. He is saying, you two go together and go over there and teach and preach in that village. And I'm giving you power. I'm sending my power with you. How did that work? I don't know. I can't explain that. But they were empowered. Perhaps a temporary blessing of the Holy Spirit. I don't know. He sent authority with them. You tell the spirits what to do, and it'll happen. You heal this person, and it'll happen. You do it in my name. It'll happen. So each of them, think about that. Even Judas is sent out with this power. And they worked miracles, and they cast out demons. They did it in his name, not to show how great they were, but to share the gospel message. We'll come back to that. So the instructions, we're going to get into those now in verses 8 through 11. They were for this particular mission, and the first idea that I see in that is my second point. Materialism has no place in the mission that Jesus sends us on. Verse 8 says, He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. What's the idea here? Well, I'll I'll tell you some of the details of what those items are, but the basic idea seems to be don't go out and buy more supplies. Take what you have. And we've already seen that, actually. Remember, he was preaching on the boat, and it says that they took him along, along just as he was. They didn't go back and make other provisions. They didn't go back for the snacks. They didn't go back for more money or clothes or anything else. They just went. And that seems to be the idea. If you have a staff, take it. Don't buy another one. Don't go begging, that kind of thing. I liked David Guzik's comment. He said, The disciples didn't need fancy equipment to preach a simple message. Too much stuff would get in the way of their urgent message. It would slow them down. It would distract them. And I read that and I thought, yeah. How easy it is for us to get distracted by stuff. How easy we are distracted by the glittery things around us whatever it is for you, the house, the car, the clothes, the shoes, the, the bank account, whatever it is, whatever can easily stumble you in terms of material possessions can distract you as well, can distract me from the mission we've been sent on. 
So he's telling them, travel light. Jesus' words over in Luke 12, he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. It's not about stuff. It's not how many toys I have. Life doesn't consist in that. That's what Jesus said. And here he's telling them, don't take everything you own. Don't go out and buy more stuff in order to go on this mission. So what are the specific items? The staff is probably a walking stick. That'd be for protection. That would be for ease in walking and so on. Uh, The bag could have been like a wallet or even a a leather bag like a lunchbox idea. Sandals, I'm glad they were able to take those because that would protect their feet. That's nice. And not two tunics. Well, tunics, that was the inner. That would be like a shirt, the inner garment, and a cloak would be the outer garment. So don't take two of those. Why? Well, a couple possibilities. One is that rich people commonly would wear two of them. Why? I don't know. To me, that would be hot. But they would have two, and maybe just make sure everybody can see I have two shirts on so that they know that I'm rich. So certainly that was not how Jesus wanted any of his disciples to be identified. The idea is don't bog yourself down. Travel light. I asked you at the beginning how many of you like to take everything plus the kitchen sink. For this kind of mission, don't do that. I don't want you to be slowed down. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just it'll get in the way. It's that he wants them to be dependent on others to see God provide for them. So that's the next part. Point three, God provides for his children while they're on that mission. God wanted to provide the food and shelter through the people they stayed with. In this case, they were Jewish households. We, we read in the parallel account that they were sent specifically to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's in Matthew. And last week, we saw Jesus going back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he was rejected. They would not listen to him. They did not believe him. They didn't even want to see any miracles. They just couldn't believe that anybody like that could be the Messiah. We know you. You're the carpenter. You grew up here. No. So they got to see firsthand Jesus being rejected by those he sought to help, sought to share the good news of the gospel with. And that prepared them because they're getting ready to see some opposition. So he's given them some instructions now. Some will receive, some will not receive. Here's what you should do. Verse 10. Also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. What's he saying? When you get to a house, if they receive you, stay there. Don't look for the house down the street that has a bigger backyard or has a nicer bedroom or has better food. Just stay put where you are. John MacArthur said contentment with their first host and his accommodations would be a testimony to others while the disciples ministered there. So this gave an opportunity for the disciples to express and exercise, increase their faith of dependence on God providing for them through the people they stayed with and also allowed them to interact with those people in the same way that God, Jesus called them to be with him. They basically lived with him most of the time. In this case, those two disciples were going to such and such a house in such and such a village, and they were going to live there, and their host family could see them and interact with them in formal and informal environments. So it was going to work well for both. Then there were some who would reject, and that's the fourth point. People are responsible 
for their rejection of the gospel. That's verse 11. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. When it says shake off the dust, that sounds weird to us. But shaking off the dust was something that they commonly did if they went to Gentile territory. When they came back into Jewish lands, into the promised land, they would shake the dust off their feet. Maybe in modern terms it would be more like wiping your feet on the mat. Getting the dust off their feet, their sandals, as a rejection of those who are not believers from pagan lands, I'm not going to bring that into the promised land. That was the picture. But that's not what they're doing, is it? Because where are they? They're in the promised land already. So what he's saying is that when you come to a village, a household, when you come to a place where you are rejected, where you share the gospel message and they reject you, show that you're rejecting them. Frankly, he's saying, show that I'm rejecting them because we are responsible for our response to the gospel. And that's what he, he's showing here, that people will reject, but they are responsible for their rejection. Here's how this works. The disciples went two by two, and they were supposed to share the message. And if they obeyed, and the people rejected, the disciples were not held accountable for that. Just like if you go try to share the gospel with your coworker or your neighbor or your classmate and you're rejected and that person makes fun of you or, or just says, no, I don't believe any of that stuff. That's fine for you, but that, that's not what I believe. You've done your job. Individuals are responsible for their acceptance or rejection of the truth of the gospel. And there's a statement there that I'm not going to spend time on and I'll explain why, more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the cities that reject you. The earliest manuscripts don't have that phrase. Some of your translations, you were wondering, where is he getting that? We do know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We do know that God rejected and judged them. And if you read throughout the Old Testament in Genesis, but even later, it's referenced several times in the other places in the Gospels. It's mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel hones in on that and says, their rejection, what they did wrong, their sin was pride. Now, there are a lot of other sins we could talk about from Sodom and Gomorrah, but ultimately it was pride. It was, we don't need God. We don't need to obey God. We don't want the way he has designed creation to work. We don't want any part of him. And they went down the road of Romans 1. And there was all sorts of violence and sexual sin, and God punished that. We're going to move on to verse 12, though, and this is our last point for today. Repentance is essential to the message of the gospel. So they went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, when it says preach, don't get hung up on that. Don't think, okay, well, I, I'm not called to preach, so I don't have to do that. It's the idea of proclaim. They talked to people. They told the message. They were announcing the good news. David Guzik said, some of the best and most effective preaching never happens inside a church. 
It happens when followers of Jesus are one-on-one with others telling about what Jesus did for them. Yes, by God's grace, I'm going to get up and teach the Bible every week and I'm going to share the gospel every week. But what's much more effective is when I get to talk to somebody individually or better yet, when one of you gets to talk to somebody individually and share your faith and share, this is what God's taught me. This is how my life was and this is how it is now. And Jesus has made such a difference. He has rescued me. He has saved me. He has changed me. That's meaningful and that's, Every bit as important. I'll just leave it at that. It is every bit as important as preaching. It is what we're all called to do, whether or not you ever stand up in front of a group. And what are they supposed to preach? Did you see it? This is verse 12. So they went out and preached what? That people should repent. So some of you are thinking, Bob, you have five points. You're almost finished here. I am, but I want to park on this idea of repentance for a few minutes. I'm going to show you some scriptures. You don't have to turn there. But I want you to see that repentance was part of every important message that we know of in the New Testament. Going back to John the Baptist. So this is Mark chapter 1, verse 4, very beginning of the book. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What was John the Baptist preaching about? Repentance. Okay? John was thrown into prison. Jesus comes on the scene later in the same chapter. Chapter 1, verse 14. And John, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So we have John the Baptist. What does he preach? Repent. Jesus comes, picks up right where he left off. What does he preach? Repent. And you think, oh, that's fine. That, That was Jesus. That was his forerunner. Okay, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, that sermon, Acts chapter 2, they, they were convicted. The Holy Spirit was at work. And they said, what do we need to do? Where does this leave us? What are we supposed to do? Peter's reply, verse 38 of chapter 2, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It didn't stop there. It's not just something for Pentecost. It goes beyond that because we read of Paul. Near the end of the book of Acts, he's sort of summarizing his ministry in some places. Acts 26.20 says, First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached, what did he preach? That they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So we have the verb and the noun on that one. Anybody seeing a pattern here? Is there something in common in these? Yes, there is. So if the idea of repentance is so important that that's what everybody in the New Testament seems to be preaching, we should probably know what it is. And if you've been here any length of time, you know that I use that term frequently. But I don't want to take for granted that we all understand it or or know what it looks like in our lives. So first off, what is repentance? The answer is that it is a change of mind that results in a change of action. Let me say that a different way. If there has not been any change in action, then repentance probably hasn't taken place. You can work it backward that way. A change of mind that results in a change of action. That's repentance. 
And as I was looking, I looked at the gotquestions.org website, and they had that statement. It is a wholehearted turning to God. I like that. Because it's a turning away from sin and turning to God. How? With everything I have. What is the command of Deuteronomy 6? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's the idea. If I have repented, then I am hating, I am turning my back on my sin in order to turn everything I have to God. That's the picture here. That's repentance. More specifically, to repent as it pertains to salvation is to change your mind regarding sin and change your mind regarding Jesus. Because I don't think that anyone can believe the gospel, can be saved the way we normally say it, if you don't change your mind about your sin and change your mind about Jesus. You have to understand, I have sin. I've broken God's laws. And the penalty for that, the Bible tells me, is death. Eternal separation from God. And there's nothing I can do about it. Except that Jesus did it for me. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. And the Bible tells me if I believe that, the good news that He paid the penalty for my sin, that He rescued me, that He gives eternal life, if I believe that, I have salvation. I have to change my mind about my own sin and about Jesus Christ the Savior if I am going to repent to salvation. Now there's one verse, and it's a long verse. Some of Paul's verses are pretty long. This one's long. It didn't even fit on one slide. But this is 2 Corinthians 7.11. And I, I want to draw your attention. I gave you a handout in your bulletin that has this information. I'm not going to go through everything that's on this handout. This is more for you to think about and to work through on your own. But 2 Corinthians 7.11 teaches us that godly sorrow produces repentance. What is the product of godly sorrow? It is repentance. So then that causes me to wonder, well, are there products of, byproducts, if you want to call them that, of repentance? And yes, there are. So here's what it looks like. Why, why am I spending time on this? If any of you are struggling with a specific sin, something that you can't seem to get victory over, maybe you've struggled with it for years, and, and you're struggling, which tells me that there's a good chance that you're a Christian because unsaved people don't struggle with sin. They just indulge in it and enjoy it. But if this is something that can, the Holy Spirit convicts you and your conscience bothers you, we're going to talk more about that next week, inherit in his guilty conscience. But if there is sin that you are losing the battle against, the world, the flesh, the devil are getting victory over you, then this is a very important concept for you to consider, to meditate on, to study on your own. To understand the way this verse walks you through repentance step by step. So let's look at it. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What's going on? Paul has written a letter that made the church at Corinth sad. And not just emotionally sad, but sorrow that went somewhere. And that's what he's writing about right now. 
you sorrowed in a godly manner. And then he starts listing some things. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. So he lists all these things. And then he goes on. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So he kind of throws one more on there at the end, the clear. So understand, based on that verse, in all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter, there is a prerequisite for biblical repentance. Before you can be saved, there's going to be something called godly sorrow. Does that mean that when you got saved, there had to be lots of tears shed and a a big emotional to-do? No. No, not necessarily. There could be. For some people, there is. But the inside, you are convicted of your sin. And you are sorry, genuinely sorry, that you have broken God's laws and what it cost Him to pay your fine, to pay your debt. He gave His only Son to die in your place and in my place. And that's a soberness. That is a sorrow. So that, requ- that is required for repentance. There has to be godly sorrow. But once repentance has taken place, there are some things that are going to happen. And for the purpose of the PowerPoint behind me, I put everything on one table. But as you work through this, and I would encourage you to work through this, it would be good for anyone, but especially those of you, if there is a sin habit that is cleaning your clock then this is a wonderful way, directly from God's Word, to consider some of these things. And there is an external action or an internal attitude for each one. So where it says diligence, what are you willing to do so that you don't sin again? Someone who is struggling with the sin of gambling shouldn't go to a casino. If you're struggling with drunkenness, you shouldn't be at the bar. If you're struggling with pornography, you shouldn't have free reign of the internet or magazines or anything else. There are certain things that you should do in your life to make it hard to commit the sin again. The next one is also an external action to clear yourself, to prove that God is changing me and I'm not doing this anymore. To what lengths would you go for that? What are you willing to do to regain a righteous testimony? The third was an internal attitude. How much does my sin really bother me? The fancy word in the New King James is indignation. Does it make you upset when you sin? It absolutely should. We're going to talk next week, like I said, about sin and about conscience. And there's a point at which your conscience can be calloused. It can be seared. And I can do the same th- sin over and over. I can tell enough lies that it, I don't even think about it anymore. I, I can steal. I can pickpocket. I can, by God's grace, I'm not doing these things. But I'm just giving you examples of we fall into habits and traps. We are creatures of habit. And if you sin a sin often enough, it doesn't bother you anymore. How much does my sin really bother me? Number four is another attitude. The idea of dread and fear. Do I fear, in the right way, this sin enough 
to be aware of it. If I am concerned about falling into the sin of lust, if I'm concerned about falling into the sin of covetousness, what am I doing to stay on guard? Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God, right? And what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to walk circumspectly. We are supposed to be alert. Some of you have been in the, the police or the military, and you understand what it is to be aware of things around you, even in retail and in banking. We're supposed to be aware of who and what is around us. You understand this. Well, we need the right attitude toward sin and temptation. And how can I avoid that? And how can I have a reverential fear enough of God that I'm concerned? I know my own weakness. I know my own flesh. I don't want to have any part of that. Number five is another attitude that's inside. How badly do I want to be free from this? I can say all I want. I want to be in good shape. Or I want to eat healthier. Well, that requires me to do something, doesn't it? It's not going to happen automatically. I've got to get up and do it. Or I need to say no to certain foods or whatever it is. We understand those things. But there is a zeal, a dedication. I'm going to say no to some things. I'm going to say yes to some things because I want very badly to be free from this. And then the last one is another action. What am I willing to do to make things right, if possible? Is there a human relationship that I need to reach out and apologize and restore? If I stole something, I need to make that right. There may be consequences for cheating or lying or stealing. Are you willing to submit to those consequences? None of us is perfect. Working through that list by itself is not going to stop you from sinning. Working through it successfully and really meditating and praying through it doesn't mean that you're never going to sin in that area again. And there is mercy and there is grace. We read in Isaiah earlier, didn't we? That we come and there is abundant pardon. There is forgiveness for every sin that we have committed or will commit. But the question, and I've, I've used this material I just went through with you in counseling before, and I've asked myself and I've asked others, how do you know when you've repented? How do you know when this is real, when this is played out? And the answer is, you hate your sin enough to stop doing it. You love God enough that you don't do it. And that's the godly sorrow that works repentance, and those are the steps, that's the product, the byproducts of repentance. And I will say that if you have specific questions or you want to talk through with me or with Rochelle or with somebody else, another believer here, if you need counsel or want to be directed to somebody else, Let's do it. If we're serious about loving God and serving Him and being the holy people He has called us to be, there may be some changes we need to make. Likely there are. And He'll show you what each one is along the way.
but let's have a conversation. Let's work through this. Coming back now to finish up our passage in Mark 6. It says that they anointed with oil, which is the only place that appears in the Gospels. We know it comes up again in James chapter 4. Half-brother of Jesus wrote about it in his epistle. But the point there isn't that there was magic oil that Jesus gave them. The idea is that the oil is simply a symbol that was common in that day of had medicinal properties. Take this with you, anoint with oil, because the healing's coming from Jesus. In the same way, the power to cast out a demon is coming from Jesus. It's his authority. Power over sickness coming from Jesus, sometimes through anointing with oil. As I said earlier, we don't know how long the preaching tour lasted. Probably weeks, maybe a little longer than that. And we know that it gets wrapped up on the other side of the story about Herod. And this is verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. So both are there. We know that the preaching was listed first earlier and the works were listed second. Here's the other way around. But he, they gave a report. Jesus, we obeyed. We did what you said. We went these places. If they received us, we stayed in the same house. If they rejected us, we shook the dust off against them and went on to the next town. And while we were doing it, here's what we preached. We pre preached the message of repentance. And we were able to work this miracle here and cast out this demon over there. We were able to do the things you did because he sent his authority, his power with them. He commissioned them to do this. So we'll come back to verse 30 in order when we get there. But that's kind of the end of this section. The disciples were obedient. They went out, they did what Jesus told them to do. Let's remember who these guys are. A year ago, they were fishermen. Or tax collectors. Or zealots. God brought them together. Jesus called them to be his disciples. And now he's sending them out. He's had them with him. He's sending them out to serve him, to do what he wants them to do, to show his power, to show his authority, and to preach his message. So one last review. Jesus sends out his disciples on mission. If we are his disciples, he's sending us. He has something for us to do. We cannot be caught up in the world around us. Materialism does not have a place in that task. We need to have an eternal focus. Because he doesn't want us focused on the stuff, he's going to provide for what we need. And along the way, some people are going to reject. And when they reject, that's on them. We want to be as loving and as concerned as we can, but they're going to make their decision. And God will hold them uh, responsible for it. And then repentance is the essential part of this message of the gospel. So if there's anyone here this morning in this room, if there's anyone joining us online, if you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to repent. We've talked a lot about that today, about what that means. But it means to come to God, knowing that you are sinful and that He is holy, but He has made a way for you to be saved. And you call on Him. You believe on Him. Often you will pray, but the words aren't important. Walking an aisle is not important by itself. But whatever he leads you to do to respond to this good news message, that's what you should do. And talk to him about believing this good news about Jesus. Believers. 
if Jesus sends out his disciples, and we believe he does, are you going? Are you telling anybody? Has stuff crept into your life and become a distraction to you? To fuel that sin of covetousness? Are you worried about the food, clothing, and shelter? We read elsewhere that God knows what we need. Our Heavenly Father knows what we need. He provides it. So we shouldn't spend excess time or care or worry on where it's going to come from. He'll provide it. We need to trust Him. That's our part. And then what we've probably spent the longest on this morning, are you having consistent victory over sin? And if not, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to turn from the sin and turn to God. We're supposed to repent. It's a change of mind that will lead to a change of action. And that will happen only with God's help, with His grace. But you can turn to Him, you can return to Him and start again today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I would ask you to do whatever God is leading you to do. And that's why I'm taking just a moment here before I pray for you to respond to what God is leading you to do. It's His Word. It's His Holy Spirit. If there's something specific that you know you need to do or need to stop doing, tell Him about it. If there's someone here you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, today's your day. He welcomes you to do that. I encourage you to do that. Call out to him for salvation. Our Father, as you search our hearts, that's one of the jobs of your Holy Spirit, to to search us, to try us, to convict us, to cleanse us. I pray that he would do that today. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, some of whom may be struggling with particular sin areas, that you would give us grace to do what your word says and to repent to turn from that sin, to follow through on this process from 2 Corinthians 7.11. That we would see the product of godly sorrow as repentance and we'd, we'd see these products of repentance in our lives. That we would be cleared. That we would be zealous for good works. That we would have a godly fear of you and of our own weakness and our own sin. Father, you've said that if we confess our sins to you, you are faithful, you are righteous, and you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what we cast our hope in today. That you, Jesus, are the Savior. You're the rescuer. You are our hope and you are our help. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.